So I've got like three chapters to cover. I'm not going to do every verse, but I'm going to wrap up the book of Romans today and uh, hopefully be able to get to the end here. But I will touch on some of the verses, so bear with me as we go through this and, um, and we'll get through it. I think it's an important topic that we need to look at as far as the differences in our church and the unity that needs to happen. And right here in these last four, uh, three chapters, we see this spoken of. Now, I may have mentioned this story before, but I think it's a, it's a good one. It helps us get a good perspective on things. Uh, it's a story about uh, an Admiral Phipps, commander of the British fleet in the 1750s, during the conflict between England and France, and France and Canada. And Admiral Phipps was given orders to anchor outside Quebec and wait for the British land forces to arrive and then support them when they attacked the city. Now, while waiting in the harbor, Admiral Phipps became annoyed by the statues of the saints on the towers of a nearby cathedral, and so he commanded his men to shoot at them with the ship's cannons. No one knows how many rounds were fired or how many statues were knocked out, but when the land forces arrived and signal was given to attack, the admiral was of no help because he had used up all his ammunition shooting at the saints. And unfortunately, the same can be said for many believers today. We have no ammunition to use against the devil because we have used it all shooting at the saints, shooting at one another. A local church can be a melting pot of various cultural backgrounds. If you've attended other churches, you can uh, probably attest to that. Those of you who've been here for many years have seen the the. Um, makeup of this church change, uh, different people coming and going, and uh, it, it, various backgrounds. One person may have grown up in a culture that frowns on engaging in certain activities on Sunday. He or she believes, for example, that it is wrong to work or shop or play golf on Sunday. Don't do it. Another believer chooses to work on Sunday once in a while. Another sets up an afternoon tea time with his golf buddies. After church, another hunts Sunday bargains at her favorite stores. Other cultural differences may extend to how we dress, how we groom ourselves, what we eat, what entertainment forms we choose. But Kim, how about a game of hearts at Multnomah? Would that be? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Different cultural backgrounds come together. How then can believers of different backgrounds and preferences and, and, and non-doctrinal convictions get along and represent the Lord well in a community? How can that even happen? The answer lies in today's message that we're going to be looking at here. And in the closing chapters of Romans, Paul reminded his readers about a great balance that must be struck in lives motivated by Christ's love to be holy. The forces upon which this balance hinges are the laws of liberty and love. The law of liberty permits a Christian to do many things, some of which could even raise a question in another Christian's mind, and you probably can think of some things. That is where the law of love must become a, a bit weighty and provide a balance for the sake of a rightful reflection of Christ and for the strengthening of the weaker brother or sister. The law of love motivates the Christian to sacrifice this liberty rather than to cause the weaker brother or sister to falter in his or her walk. For instance, if someone thinks that playing cards is okay, while someone else says no, that's sinful, then the person who thinks plays, is okay to play cards 
will not do so around that person to make that person falter, make that person think something's going on that shouldn't be happening. It's, it's the non, non-essentials, basically, that are happening there. So we are free from sin and bondage, but we are not free from the obligation of regard for others and to love them. Out of love, we defer. So how shall we live? Let's look at this. In chapter 14, let's look at the first 13 verses here of chapter 14. How shall we live? We should live to show care for each other. We should live to show care for each other. In those first six verses, we should be able to recognize here that we need to be accepting without judgment on disputable matters. We're going to camp here for a little bit. But be accepting without judgment on disputable matters. The first six verses says, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. We'll stop there at that verse. So in the previous chapters of, of Romans, Paul discussed how to show love for our neighbors and those in authority. And then in chapters 14 and also in 15, Paul explained how we are to be united in love despite the diversity of the body of Christ. This diversity is shown by the description of two groups of believers. We have the weak, and then we have the strong. And the weak and the strong are not different in their commitment or character, but in their convictions. Now, both groups are committed to Christ and have no desire to bring reproach upon Him. But they differ over what are permissible practices for believers, the do's and don'ts. Though we don't know who these weak and strong believers are, we kind of get a little idea. It's, it's quite possible that the weak believers were Jewish Christians who were still preoccupied with the Jewish regulations of diet and special days. And maybe the strong believers were Gentile converts in a, in a few Jewish Christians whose consciences had been set free from Jewish ritualistic rules. So they, were, they felt free to do whatever they needed to do. It didn't matter about, to their faith about those things. And Paul began then with this simple principle that we see in verse 1. Very simple, and I think it's something that we could follow in a very good starting place. Verse 1, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. And there's some key things in here. This acceptance is more than just acknowledging one's existence or a person's right to belong. Come join us. You're welcome. We, we, we involve everyone. It means, though, to welcome someone into your circle of love with warmth and with kindness. If you put it in Toy Story terms, it's getting Andy written on the bottom of your boot. The same Greek word for acceptance is used in Acts chapter 18, verse 26, to describe how Priscilla and Aquila received Apollos into their home. 
and also in Acts chapter 28, verse 2, to show how the islanders of Malta welcomed Paul and his fellow shipwrecked survivors with warmth, with kindness. And as we include others in our circle of love, we are to do so without engaging in debates or arguments over the matters of, of individual opinion or personal conviction. So then the question might arise, and it has, because Paul stated, answered the question actually with uh, four reasons. But why are we to follow the principle of acceptance? Why do we need to, to accept these people? Paul, again, gives four reasons. Uh, one of them is in verse 3. God has accepted him. <laughs> if God has accepted him, we should also as well. How dare we not include someone in our circle of love who has been included in God's circle of love? A second reason found in verse 9, Christ died and returned to life so that we might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. We're going to see this here in a moment as far as verse 9. We haven't gotten there yet. But since Christ is Lord over the extremes of life and death, He is also Lord over the extremes of weak and strong consciences. So God is Lord of, Christ is Lord of all. And the third reason, a fellow believer is your brother. In verse 10, whether weak or strong, we are related to one another through the strongest possible cord within the spiritual family of God. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And because we're part of that family, we need to, re be re we need to relate to one another. And the fourth reason that he gives here is found in verse 12. If you see that ahead here, we're going to read it soon. But each of us will give an account of himself to God. We are accountable to God. Our judgment on disputable matters must be withheld because in verse 10 it says, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is us that we need, we only, our own self, stand before God. We are responsible. We are accountable for our actions and what we do. And about these disputable matters that it mentions in verse 1, we as the church must always try to distinguish among three categories of Christian doctrine or ethical instruction. There are three categories. It kind of helps us put these things in the order a bit. First, there are the numerous doctrinal issues in the Word of God that are what you could call the indisputably non-negotiable. These are things that, if rejected, make it impossible to be a Christian. And being a Beaver fan isn't one of them, okay? I just want the OSU people to know that. But the deity of Christ is one of them. Knowing that God's Son, God's Son is Jesus Christ. That is indisputable. We need a non-negotiable. We need to agree on that one. But the infallibility of Scripture, that God's Word is true. Regeneration, the virgin birth, and humankind's complete inability to save itself from sin. All these things, those are just a few. And then second, another category, there are ideas and practices that may not be necessary for salvation, but Christians may see them as important enough to separate themselves into different local churches and denominations. That's why you get all these different denominations and churches in different places, where you have like five churches on, on a street corner. Uh, it's just, we were over in Monmouth, and... Uh, we were looking for parking during the state track meet down there. It was over at Western Oregon University. And as we were down there, we drove around a church, and it looped us around from the parking lot into an alleyway between two buildings, and it was one church, 
and another whole different church. It was like, wow, they're really close together. I wonder what Sunday's like. But we have all these different denominations, and that's what this second category is about. Our, you know, you have Calvinism, you have Arminianism, you have apostolic faith, you've got Mennonites, you've got Quaker, all believe just different enough to be able to associate together and meet together that way. And then third, there are elements of our walk with Christ that Christians disagree about, but do not in any way hinder their full working together as brothers and sisters. It, it's, those, it's those things that just aren't essential. But the question is, which, which ideas and practices fit in which of the three categories? Sometimes it gets a little convoluted. Sometimes those uh, uh, non-essentials get moved up a little higher than where maybe they should go. But Christians, individually and collectively, make those judgments. But notice what Paul does here. Notice that Paul placed in the third category issues that would have been of great importance, at least to the Jewish believers. There were a couple of hot buttons at the time, those issues surrounding his cultural experience. One was the things that are put into the body, and the other thing is which day is to be set aside as more sacred. So, sacred days and what you eat. These issues were so important to Paul's readers of that day because of the difficulty many new Christians were having in reconciling their new life and the liberty in Christ with those certain elements of Jewish law. There was also a group of Gentile Christians who were influenced by pagan customs and completely abstained from meat. They did so because large quantities of meat were brought to the pagan temples for idol worship. And the excess, the extras, the leftovers, which could not be consumed by fire, were sold in the market. Since it was impossible to know for sure that the meat purchase was not from one of these temples... This group of believers felt it best to abstain from meat totally. We're not going to eat any of it then. So the vegetarians were convinced that the meat eaters were surely defiling themselves and therefore deserted their faith. Backsliders. The meat eaters were convinced that the vegetarians were the overreacting backsliders and should be removed from the church. So you had two different sides here on this. Then there was, and still is today, the issue of the observance of the Sabbath. Now, that still goes on to, even to this day. Members of the early Roman church who were of Jewish descent tended to view only the seventh day of the week as the true day of worship. This conflicted with the new church's trend toward observing the first day of the week, Sunday, as the day of worship because of the resurrection of Jesus. So some then, in reaction to the Jewish purists, said that every day is the same and it just doesn't matter. And instead of supporting uh, either kind of view here, Paul encouraged believers with a great statement. Paul encouraged believers to walk so closely with the Lord that they will be fully convinced of what is right for them. And I think that's the key. Walk so closely to the Lord that you are so fully convinced that what you're doing is right for you. Not so fully convinced that what you're doing is right for you. (laughs) And since I'm doing it, it's got to be you too. Don't go that route. That's when we lift those those, uh, non-essentials higher than what they should be. 
The truth is that one could find about, about the same number of Scripture passages to support either view of this worship day issue, seventh day or, or, or the sixth day or first day or whatever. This is what Paul referred to in Romans 14, verse 1, as disputable matters. Today might not be diet and special days, but it could be traditional versus contemporary music. It could be versions of the Bible, King James versus NIV, ASV, NAV, whatever else kind of acronym you can come up with. It could be dress codes, how you dress for church. You're not going to wear that for church, are you? Those things. Now, I know one person who was fully convinced for themselves, they had a right perspective, that rock music was no good, not going to be seen, not going to be heard at all in this person's life. Because that person, before they they, they were a Christian, was caught up in that kind of music, was, was into that music, and that reminded that person of who that person was before they were a Christian. They didn't want to be reminded of that lifestyle. And so that person decided, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to listen to, I'm not going to listen to any secular music. I'm not going to listen to the rock and roll and like that. I'm not going to put that into my life. Now, for that person to turn around and say, so, Don, you also too need to not listen to that music as well. That would be totally wrong. Totally wrong. Disputable matters. And Jesus addressed this issue when faced with a Sabbath dispute in Mark chapter 2. In verses 27 and 28, he said, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So he's, he's not interested in authority of one day. He is interested in absolute authority over our lives. And Paul was reminded of the church that when these disputable issues become points of judgment by a person or a group of people, then the issues become divisive and become sinful as well. Otherwise, many of these things are neither good nor bad in themselves. Only, and listen carefully, only how they are used determines the character and holiness of a heart. How these non-essentials, how these uh, disputable matters um, are, are used determines the character and holiness of a heart. So, let's move on to verses 7 through 13. Don't judge because we live to the Lord. We live to the Lord. Follow along with me in verse 7 of chapter 14. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die or belong to the Lord, Uh, So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or your sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. So Jesus reminded us in the same way in Matthew chapter 15, verses 17 through 20, that it, that is not what goes into a person's mouth 
that defiles him, or as much as what goes into the mind, and therefore proceeds out of the mouth. So what you put in your mind and comes out of your mouth is what's important. So whatever you get in here, coming out of the mouth, determines what's going on. It is this that defiles a person and wrecks holy living. And there are a number of scripture references to the mind as a weapon for or against holy living. And it's something we need to realize. For instance, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, Jesus rebuked Peter for not having in mind the things of God. In Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus said that the mind plays a major role in complete, authentic love for God. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it helps see that believers can have all in common and be of one mind. In Romans 8, as we looked at previously, verses 6 and 7 shows that the mind controlled by the Spirit is peaceful, but the mind of a selfish person is hostile to God. And Romans 12, 2 says the mind must be transformed by renewal in order for God's will to be even be recognized. And 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 speaks of having the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, as well as 2 Corinthians 13, 11. I'm throwing all these references at you. They speak of the need for Christians to recognize what we have in common and in those things to be united in mind. It's important. And finally, here in this chapter... Romans 14, verse 13, pleads us to stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. Unfortunately, we often see the very opposite of brotherliness in the Christian community. Usually it occurs as a result of Christians assuming judgmental attitudes toward others who might differ with us on these disputable matters. And in verse 7, we are reminded that in our walk with Christ, we are not our own. We have freedom to live as we ought to live, not to live as pleasing our own flesh. As Christians, we can never disentangle ourselves from Christ or our brothers and sisters who are in Christ. We are connected. Verse 7, none of us lives to himself alone. We all affect one another with our choices and our decisions and how we react to one another. We are never isolated. And once we are given over to Christ, we cannot live as an, an, an entity unto ourselves, an island unto ourselves. And then verses 11 and 12 remind us that God is the only judge of righteousness, and we will face Him in that, that role someday. And Paul indicated that it is a, disgrace, is, is a disgrace to him for his children to try to assume that position of judge. And every individual will encounter an individual judgment. We are all going to be before God accountable. Instead of judging others, we need to effectively pursue the ordering of our own houses. Don't worry about that person over there. Be concerned about how you are with your relationship with Christ. We should also, we should also be living to bless each other. How shall we live to work this whole thing out? We should live to bless each other. Turn to chapter 15 with me. We'll look at the first six verses. Romans 15, starting with verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. 
May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll stop there. Now, throughout chapter 14, uh, as the weak are mentioned, it is only inferred that the strong, verse 1 here, are on the opposite end of the spiritual uh, spectrum. And Paul here described the stronger Christians as those who felt greater freedom in Christ. And those who felt greater allegiance to the law were seen as weaker. So Paul began chapter 15 with this strong group, and Paul included himself with this group as well. And after being identified, the strong were given their specific responsibilities toward the weak. Believers were, were called to serve one another, and that's something that should be ongoing, definitely. We could say amen to that, no problem. We should be serving one another. But the strong were especially called to serve the weak, especially and specifically. In verse 1, the strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. Now, that word failings is not, it's not sins. They are weaknesses, doubts, and the fears that these people have. As the strong realize the failings of the weak, they are commanded to provide help and support. The word of command there is ought. And it is more than just a recommendation or suggestion. It is an obligation and a duty. The strong are obligated to help out with the weak. And those who are strong are to provide help or aid to the weak to please those who are receiving that, the recipients, not to please themselves, as verse 1 says. And the tendency of human nature is to be self-centered, self-seeking. And the temptation for the strong is to use their strength to their advantage. So you're not reading your Bible 15 hours a day? <laughs> Let me help you with that one. Uh, but Christians with strong consciences are not to walk over the consciences of the weak. Strong Christians are to do what they can to work toward the advantage of the weak. In verse 2, each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, being a neighbor pleaser should not be confused, though, with being a people pleaser. The first is commanded in Scripture, while the second is condemned. A people pleaser flatters others in order to get favors in return. It is usually seen as being directly contrary to pleasing God because it lacks integrity and it lacks sincerity as well. A neighbor pleaser serves people to build up, benefit, and bless them. Just think of the Good Samaritan. It is certainly an impossibility to believe that as Christians we will always be in agreement. Every day we come together, it's like, yeah, that's right. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, you're right. That's a good thought too. And yes, I also believe that as well. It's an impossibility to think that we can all come together and be in agreement all the time. We will always have to contend with the potential of conflicting ideas and opinions. But it is very possible for us to learn to disagree and listen carefully. To disagree without being constantly disagreeable. We, we can learn. And Paul did not suggest that we compromise on doctrine or concede truth. Stand on the principles. Remember, those things that are essential. Don't back down on those. True Christian fellowship does not require complete unanimity on disputable matters. You don't need to be together on that. But it's built upon the unity of each person's relationship with Jesus Christ. As we follow Christ, as we are a people committed 
to following Christ and work on that relationship, then you'll realize the unity that comes with that as we come together. We are strengthened by that kind of unity and service. And the spiritual atrophy sets in when the strong in the faith fail to do what verse says, tells, tells us to do, bear with the failings of the weak. So the strong needs to serve the weak. And Paul gives us a couple of great reasons. First of all, because Christ did not please himself. If we are followers of Christ, we're going to follow what he did, and he didn't please himself. We are reminded in verses 3 and 4 that Christ is not asking of us anything he himself did not practice. Christ gave himself in service to the, his heavenly Father, as well as, as well as other people. In Philippians chapter 2, we read that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. We also read in Mark 10, verse 45, that he did not come to be served, but to serve. So Christ didn't please himself. We, as Christ's followers, should also follow that as well, not to please ourselves. And the strong should serve the weak as well because uh, the results of it, in verse 6, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 5 and 6, Paul breathed this prayer for all the believers. If Christians would focus on truly knowing and following the God who gives endurance and encouragement, there would be no time for or, or, or desire for war or over consciences. Instead, the result would be that with one heart, one mind, and with one mouth, the strong and the weak would glorify Christ. We would learn to celebrate diversity with adversity. And the disease and frustration of this sin of conflict would end. Wouldn't matter what kind of songs we sang, doesn't matter what kind of Bible we read from. And Christ and the Spirit of Christ would truly rule in our hearts and in His church. When the strong stoop to serve the weak, it ushers in the spirit of unity that verse 5 speaks of, which is necessary for God-pleasing worship of Christ. It creates a harmony of praise worthy of the one to whom it is offered. And finally, turn to chapter 16, Romans 16. The last three verses, actually. How shall we live? We need to live by the power of the gospel. That phrase, to, to him who is able. Verse 25, Romans 16 says, Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith, to the, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. That is a long sentence. <laughs> but it is full of incredible stuff. Now, Paul in the rest of chapter 15, I kind of skipped over some things there. He continues on to tell how he is the minister to the Gentiles and how he plans to visit Rome. And then in chapter 16, <laughs> after expressing nearly almost a chapter uh, worth of greetings within the Christian family, Paul finished his letter with a final acknowledgement of, of glory to the God who stands behind the truth this letter contains. And if this, in, in this great letter to the church at Rome, Paul power, powerfully preached and presented and defended Christ as the only answer to the dilemma of eternal death 
and separation from God. Along the way, he gave the church an idea of what the believer should look like when sold out to the sanctifying grace of God. And these last three verses pack a massive reminder that what looks impossible is barely a challenge for Almighty God. In the very beginning of, of verse 25, the word for able in the Greek is dunameno, which is also expressed with a similar term, dunamei. And this indicates an indescribable power by virtue of one's own ability or resources. It is also believed that the root of this term is where we now get the word dynamite. So this infinite power attributed to God, he then gives to us so that we might find it possible to be grounded and established in the truth of what the letter of Romans defines. The term translated establish refers to making something stable, to place, to place it firmly and permanently to set fast with strength. And if the descriptions of holiness and, and the warnings to, to live as those strong in the faith discourage you, as you look through the book of Romans, you're going, oh, I'm never going to live up to that. Hard to, hard to even follow those things. If those things seem to discourage you, take courage in his power to firmly strengthen and establish you deeper in your faith. In the process, his likeness becomes more firmly established in us. In verses 26 and 27, they reveal his purpose for this powerful establishment of his likeness in us so that all nations might believe and obey him. And because all of the glory belongs to the only wise God forever through Jesus Christ. That's the reason we come behind all this. And we live in these ways that these last three chapters speak about. An old expression says, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, diversity. Holy love transforms this sentiment from just a written motto into a living reality. The first step is to narrow the essentials to the fewest number possible and then expand the non-essentials to the maximum degree. But the second step in all this is an even greater challenge because we must firmly decide not to divide over our non-essential differences in order to, to live, to love, and to work together. Someone described the church as being like a box of crayons. The crayons are all different in color, different in size, different in shape, different in use, but all the crayons must stay in the same box together to accomplish their common purpose, bringing pictures into living color. The church must learn the lesson of working and living together regardless of differences if we are to accomplish our mission of bringing the lost to Christ. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. They're going to lead us in the last couple songs here. And as I do, let me remind you of someone else who wrote a song, Bob Gilman. Not many of you probably recognize that name, but you'll recognize the song he wrote because he wrote the lyrics to this familiar song. It goes like this, Bind us together, Lord, bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together. Bind us together with love. With love. And not any certain general kind of love, God's love. 
God's love. Holy people don't let petty differences tear them apart because they have been bound together with cords of holy love for one another. And that is my prayer for this church, for myself as well, that we have that holy love that binds us together, the holy love for one another. As a people who are committed to following Jesus and desire to be a community where God's love changes lives, we need to be all about this uniting force of holy love. We need to, we need to be in it. So allow God to fill you with his holy love this week as you live out today's message. And in the words of Paul, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. Has the Holy Spirit spoken to you about some things? Maybe there's something that God is speaking to you about as far as how you've treated one another. Maybe God is speaking to you about how you need to uh, receive that love from, from one another. Maybe there's differences that you've recognized before, and, and it's hard to reach out to maybe that person because they don't quite think the same way. Ask God to help you be able to connect with that person. Ask God to help you find ways, tangible ways, to be able to connect with one another so that we become that unified group, the people who are committed followers of Christ, so that we have a community where God's love changes lives. You want to see lives changed? Allow God to change yours first.